Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Argus Podcast with me, Christian Fuller. Today, we are joined by former model turned activist and businesswoman, Heather Mills. We chat about her life in Brighton, her cafe in Hove, and her veganism journey. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Looking forward to it. Nice to meet you. Firstly, what title do you prefer to go by, if any? An activist, campaigner, businesswoman, athlete, model? Interesting. Uh, definitely not model. Haven't done that for 100 years. I don't know. What do you call someone that does a multitude of things in many areas, but a problem solver, I suppose. It's just whatever the problem is, there's always a solution, whether it's in animal rights, health, environmentalism making a difference disability just anything anything possible so you know I run a number of companies um, and I never give myself titles and when people say what's my title I'm like oh I haven't got a bit of clue what I just don't think of things like that so so I suppose philanthropist entrepreneur investor you know a multi a multitude of things I I was going to ask whether it's changed throughout the years but I suppose it's kind of progressed it's all all of them all of the above I mean literally if someone spends a week with me it covers everything so one minute I could be counseling a 13 year old who's losing a leg from osteosarcoma the next minute I might be on a discussion on some factory production that's gone down or we can't get some vegan cheese through the Brexit borders since the Brexit or um you know could be anything it changes every you know 30 minutes ago I was just talking to the government on the phone hacking so it changes every hour. Before we jump into your life and career and so on, can you tell me a bit about the business convention you've got coming up in Brighton next month? Yeah, so I was asked to be one of the main speakers at the Acumen Business Centre in um, in Brighton on the 8th of June. And obviously Brighton's where, you know, a big part of my heart is. Um, I did a lot of living there. My grandma lived there. It's been going apparently every year since 2010 to motivate people um, and businesses with different leaders um, in attendance that can, it's, I suppose it's like a TED Talk type style where people can um, get influenced by each other. And as, as a business owner, you're always at the top of the tree and alone. So, you know, when you're employees, you've got different issues, but you talk to each other, you can vent. You can't do any of that. Going back to the start, how far back does your connection with Brighton and Hove go? Because I'm right in thinking your father grew up in Brighton as well. My grandma um, ran the post office in West Dean, sort of to the left of Brighton. We used to go there from Newcastle on, you know, in the summer holidays, and she used to take us on the on the beach and put those penny slot machines, try and get the penny between the black lines. I don't, and I doubt they exist anymore, but it was just exciting, and we'd spend a lot of time with her. She was adopted my dad, and she'd been a midwife but could never have kids, so she must have delivered about three four hundred kids in her career and, and adopted my dad and that's where they lived with the, with my granddad and she died when she was about 84 um, went completely blind but always went to the shop with me and the only thing she could see was when she looked down to the WL lines so she was the only person I knew that loved WL lines. I know you moved around a fair bit when you were a child but when did you sort of settle in Brighton as an adult? Yeah, I mean, I lived all over the place, but I suppose I bought a place in Cross Street and renovated it in 2000, well, actually, probably 2000, 
And then I had a meeting years later with Norman Cook about some other business. And I said, how he got a house on the beach. How did you do that? And he said, oh, well, it's a, it's a private road and um, they don't come up very often. But the ex-editor, I can't remember his name, it was that long ago, of um, a newspaper and his wife was selling one of their houses that needed renovating on the beach. So many, many years later, I bought that house and then I bought the cafe next to it and set up the first vegan cafe in 2008 and lived there for a number of years um, until we had to move. Um, But I loved it. And I still then had cafes and moved into um, East Street and opened a cooperative non-profit cafe for the local community to try and introduce vegan food and get more people involved in it. So with the help of Viva Charity that we're based there and eventually moved to Bristol so Brighton became the vegan capital of the country. You mentioned that that road you famously lived on with Paul and quite a renowned road for its residents I suppose is it odd knowing people's fascination with that road and its residents? Yeah I never lived there with him that was always my house but um, it was yeah it was known for that but I only knew Norman and Zoe there who were absolutely fabulous all the other known people came well after I'd left. How do you look back on those times living in Brighton and Hove? I loved living there. It was absolutely fabulous. I I loved running the cafe there. We always had problems that they wouldn't ice the paths and the roads properly in the middle of uh, winter. So, you know, people would often fall over and we would try to get hold of stuff to throw salt down and things like that. But apart from that, we had uh, a fabulous time. And do you still come back? fairly often yeah I do I do I've got yeah my friend Carl has Moshimo the Japanese restaurant in the in the center who's really close friend of mine him and Sahila so yeah we I'd probably go back once every few months I've heard you say that you were a millionaire by the age of 19 and that money doesn't mean anything unless you make a difference with it was that the driving factor behind everything you've done to help others that kind of thought process of it doesn't mean anything unless you make a difference with it yeah, I suppose because my childhood was, a, you know, overcoming adversity. My mum left when I was nine. My dad went to prison when I was 13. I had to bring up the family. I appreciated the value of money, but I also understood how it could make a difference. So why die on a, on a tomb of it when you can do something with it? Never understood, you know, people that are obsessed with it. So because I've never been very connected to it, I've always managed to make it and make a difference with it. And, and it's also gives you the ability to take big risks because if you're willing to live in a camper van then you've got no fear if you don't live the two up two down you know white picket fence and the, the aspiration for the best car and the this and that then you don't have that fear so you say okay let's just go for your dreams and being happy is the most important thing you know I lived on the streets in London as a teenager and yes it was cold but I was free you know, you don't have the other headaches that people have in everyday society of running businesses and the stresses and strains of family life. So I kind of often talk to a lot of homeless people very often and kind of understand why some of them, even when they've got the opportunity to get housing, which not everybody has, why they choose to live that life and that feeling of freedom. And you've turned your hand to activism and charitable causes spanning a huge range of areas. What is it that makes you want to help others across so many different areas and topics just because I feel I can problem solve it that's how my brain works I don't know whether it's genetic or it's a mix of both with experience but I don't see any boundaries and I don't see any walls I I don't never start a sentence with the problem is 
I always say, right, well, what are the solution options and what are the consequences and what's the accountability and why not this and why not that? And I think it's probably from my early days of a lack of education. Um, I do believe in education. I think it's fantastic, but I, I really think that it's really important not to stick people in boxes or make make them feel like that that's what their life has to be. A lot of parents can put pressure on their children to say, oh, I've just put you through a private school and you've got to become a lawyer or a doctor or this or that. And they don't give them enough freedom to discover who they are and what they want to be. But at the same time, you get other parents that just allow their kids to get away with murder, that there are no boundaries and they don't learn to actually have some responsibility and, and sit and think about, you know, being um, a contribution to society. So I don't know. It's, it's, I don't see any reason why there aren't solutions to things. There's always a way around something. It might not happen in the timeline that you want it to, and it might mean you've got to try a thousand ways to get there. But it's it's about how much do you want it and, and what difference do you want to make. A large part of your life is veganism. If you wouldn't mind just telling me sort of how that first came about for you. Yeah, it was accidental. I was a typical Geordie sausage to meat and veg growing up. and um, But because we were poor, we only got meat on the weekends. So I used to go, oh, people are so lucky, you know, they get meat more than once a week. So we were basically vegan accidentally. It would be like bean and mashed potato pie most of the week. So when I had my accident in 1993, I'd been working in the war in the former Yugoslavia, came back and um, was advising the Shadow Defence Secretary, crossed the street, police motorcycle, chopped my leg off, crushed my pelvis, punctured my lung. And they kept chopping my leg off more and more in hospital. And they basically said they're going to take it above the knee. And luckily, my girlfriend came in and said, you've got to go vegan. And I was like, vegan? She's vegan? I have no idea what that is. And she said, I've cured myself of breast cancer. And I was like, well, I can't believe that. And I was only 25, but I had experienced a lot. And she took me off to Hippocrates in West Palm Beach. They put me on all this weird wheatgrass I'd never heard of and um, sprouted juices and all this kind of stuff. But my leg closed and healed after two weeks. And bear in mind, I'd been in hospital for five months and nothing had happened. So, um, so I was raw vegan for a couple of years, but then I found it very boring in the winter of freezing cold, going in a restaurant, eating rabbit food. And um, when you're ill, it's essential. But once I'd recovered, I thought I could have a bit more balance. So I started developing, didn't want to go back to eating meat or dairy because I then understand, you know, understood back then in the 90s, just how bad it was for the health and the environment and the animals. But there's only a small group of us that, that got that. The rest of us thought we were crazy. And so I developed, you know, meat, fish and dairy alternates back in the 90s so that everybody could carry on eating what they, you know, liked as a junk food, but it was a healthier junk food and it didn't hurt animals and it didn't harm the environment. So that's how it came about in the 90s. So I set up a company which later became V-Bites and um, opened the cafe in Brighton on the beach and 3,000 people turned up and we did Japanese Mondays and Thai Tuesdays and you know Italian Wednesdays and English Sunday roasts and lots of cakes and just showed that you could replace every single product like for like with the meat fish dairy or cake alternates we had a running sushi bar with little cupcakes we did a crash area where everyone could pop their kids in so they could actually breathe for a minute while the two-year-old was running around and um just created problem solving and took away that myth that veganism was just lettuce food 
and it took a long time but finally people are basically understanding it and then the other thing I did was replicate all the dairy cheeses for vegan cheeses and went to the heads of the dairy companies who weren't interested and thought we were crazy or I'd do speeches at the EU agriculture uh, future farming in uh, Brussels but by the time they tasted the food and said but it tastes the same and it's melting the same and then we got V-Bites cheese into Domino's pizza and then I developed the first plant-based Whopper for Burger King and um, in 2003 I'd done all the McDonald's range but they weren't ready for veganism so it was just literally saying right so how can we make mcdonald's and burger king you know make the same money that they've made but without harming the animals and the planet and the environment and uh, and so that's why i replicated everything and that's where we are now it's finally finally worked after 30 years veganism is obviously still something you believe passionately in but is it more so now than at the start of the journey um well i'd say yes from day one but once i was in six months in um i would say it was equal because when you first discover something there's nothing more passionate it's about when people discover something and it becomes their their passion i mean now i'm i'm very problem solving because you know you get certain vegetables um when you're over 50 you've got less hydrochloric acid and digestive enzymes to break things down so meat is troublesome dairy is troublesome cauliflower is troublesome you know it's not just meat and dairy which are which are far worse but anything that troubles the body that you can't digest you have to work out you might have a fructan intolerance you could have you know severe acid reflux so there's things i've learned more and more on the way so we developed fodmap ready meals don't know if you know much about them but it's about whether you can handle sorbitols and polyols and, and, and fructans and things like that so it's not just you start with veganism but then you move into things that are actually going to heal you or help you but they need to still taste great because life doesn't mean a lot if you're not enjoying your food and it's tasting good you mentioned the the v-bites cafe which is now norman cook's big beach cafe was it simply a case of just you lived here or around here, been here in a case of higher proportion of people interested in that lifestyle as to why you chose Hove? No, it was, I saw the cafe and it was a fish restaurant and I thought he was looking, um, you know, to sell it, I'd heard. And I said, why don't we make this into a vegan restaurant? And then we outgrew that and it was only able to be open in the summer because it was a seasonal cafe. So I then moved it into, into East Street and people just wanted an all year round cafe and then we had to make a decision do we scale up the factories to another three or four really big factories um, that take as much time as running one cafe Um, now we've converted most of Brighton or do we focus on the factories and just at that time COVID was coming and the business rates people tripled the business rates for everyone that was doing a healthy business and we just said, right, now's the time to focus on manufacturing where we can do a huge difference. And we saw that restaurants and cafes were starting to introduce our products as vegan options. So we didn't see a 100% vegan cafe really expanding or surviving while the big corporates were now willing to put vegan options into on, onto their menu. And that was my dream. The whole thing was to get people more access to good vegan options. Do you still know Norman Cook, just out of interest? Yeah, I do. Yeah, no, he's a great guy. He's always a lovely, lovely lady. They're, they're both really great. I think Brighton and Hove already has a higher proportion of vegans than many other places. But would you recommend those who aren't vegan to turn to a vegan diet sort of right away? 
I would get them to study it, make sure you don't have any um, intolerances, make sure you're taking the vitamin B12, whether you're vegan or not. Most people need B12. And um, and then on the omega-3 side, you know, we do a, an algal oil called V-omega-3, which you can just get online, v-omega-3.com. And it's the highest level docosahexaenoic acid. So most people think omega-3 comes from fish, but it doesn't. It comes from the algae that the fish eat. So if you're going to have a piece of fish, we can sit, sit and debate that all day. But if you're just going to take a capsule, why would you take the secondary source? Um, why would you allow overfishing to kill fish to squeeze the omega-3 into capsules when you can just take the original algae capsule, which is pure and mercury-free, not refined? So once I worked this out, I said, we need to get that out there. And the second reason for doing it about 15 years ago, it took many years um, to make this algae um, from a, a top strain. The second reason was because a tiny percentage of vegans can't convert a short chain fatty acid from the likes of linseed and flaxseed into a long chain fatty acid, whereas omega-3 from algae is already that. So apart from B12 and omega-3 algae, and you have to check, there's only three top sources in the world. One we make in the UK, which is the highest, another in America, and the other one's coming from China and you don't know what's in it. So always check check the source. But yeah. For those people listening now who may be on the fence about it, are there any kind of easy first steps for people to take towards veganism? You mentioned a few things there. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I help a lot of vegan startups. We do vegan ice cream. We do vegan oat milk. We do 140 products at V-Bites, you know, help lots of different brands. So you just literally go on a, a reputable website that has recipes, um, educate yourself about, you know, the best thing you can have in the morning is if you're going to have fruit, you should have it on an empty stomach. You should never mix fruit with other products. If you want to digest them perfectly because they digest really quickly. It's all right when you're like 18 to 24. And if you're lucky, the digestive system's perfect. You can get away with it. But as you get older, it's best to sort of spread these things out to get the best nutrition. So Fruits in the morning, smoothies, juices, wheat grasses, that kind of thing. Or some substantial food like um, oat milk and oats with maple syrup instead of honey. And um, really good pulses and beans if you can digest them, lentils and vegetables and salads. And make amazing dressings because that just turns a really boring flavoured salad into something phenomenal. And it's just so easy now. There's so many recipes online and on YouTube, and as long as you have variety and color in your diet, your, your vitamins and your nutrients are pretty much sorted. However, if you're not very good with your digestive system, um, you need to work out what works for you. And I would always recommend a full blood test once a year to check all your levels, and especially when you get to my age with hormones you know, testing all of those because you can get misdiagnosed with something else when it's just literally balancing balancing the hormones naturally so all depends on the age group but just start slowly you know be a flexitarian work out exactly what works for you but everyone that we've spoke to and who has converted bit by bit just feels better and better and better what's really interesting you'll find you don't really smell because you're not full of toxins so you're not putting putrefied meat through your pores and um and dairy dairy the chinese think we stink because of all our dairy so um that's also really interesting. You also spoke about climate change a long, long time ago before many others. Is that still at the forefront of your mind and concerns? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did a, 
an event with David Attenborough um, last year, and we talked about um, why had you know the consumption of animals and the farming not been put into the blue planet earlier because it really is the number one cause of destroying the planet. So eventually that was put in, you know, the, the last blue planet and people are listening to it. But, you know, the meat and dairy and fish industries are powerful industries. And now they're starting to make money from vegan alternatives and getting involved in it. There's not the aggression and the backlash and the fight that there was many decades ago. So, um, yeah, it's really it's really starting to evolve and, and make a difference and change. If you don't mind me asking, you are one of very few people who I think has met Vladimir Putin and had a tour of the Kremlin. What was that experience like and what are your views on the current situation? Well, that's a long, long story. But basically, because I worked in the former Yugoslavia, before I lost my leg, um, I was out there ski, ski instructing and uh, the war started and basically... You know, the Serbs did not want Slovenia to declare independence. But, you know, if you're earning money and the next week it's devalued 90% and everything you've earned is worth 10% of that, you're going to eventually have enough. So Slovenia declared independence. I was living in Ljubljana and I said, you, you can't do this because they're going to possibly let you go and bomb a little bit, which they did for 10 days. But there's no way they're going to let Croatia go because... You've got all of the sea, the imports, the tourism. That's where the income's coming from, Serbia's small industry. But they didn't listen, and the war started. And, of course, we'd just come out of Iraq. So John Major and the government had no interest in going in the Yugoslavia. And the reason for that was because there was nothing to take. Unlike Ukraine at the moment, where they'll jump in and help immediately, uh, the same thing happened in the former Yugoslavia which at the time was Yugoslavia, but it took them years to help and people were massacred for a long time. But then they realized it was on the doorstep and had to help because they'd just come out of trying to rape Iraq of all its assets. Um, So unfortunately, Britain and America are only interested in helping countries that they can get something out of. They'll help a vulnerable company, a country for a little while, but only, you know, for a short term, So we're only helping Ukraine as a government, not as people, because we all care, because we want to get something from it. We want the pipelines. We want access to all the ingredients. You know, there's a massive shortage of wheat and gluten at the moment. There's a a big domino effect of of why this happens. But rather than be honest about it, and also they are selling weapons, no matter how much they say they're handing them over. But the British tend to believe what the media write, and that's... That's the real downside of us. So as far as the Ukraine-Russia situation is concerned, both sides are as bad as each other. All wars are a complete waste of time, money, lives, everything. Nobody gains anything except potentially some governments. And you've seen what's happened in Afghanistan. You know, Russia were ruling that. We went in there. It's gone full circle. You know, we've got everything out of them that we want and we're not bothering. So in answer to your Putin question, I wanted to get as many governments as possible to sign that they would no longer mass produce stockpile landmines many, many years ago. And because we were traveling around the world um, touring, I said, let's do a concert in Russia and let's try and get a meeting with Putin so that I can actually see if he will ratify and sign because I'd had 
Bill Clinton promise and lots of other countries um, because we, we got Princess Diana involved and she did some brilliant work, which then meant when she sadly passed, we got 142 more signatories. What we needed was China, America and Russia. They were the big manufacturers and distributors of the landmines. So setting up a concert meant we got to meet. And in all honesty, my experience was everything that I asked for happened and everything that was said was done. And that's the only experience I ever had. And then a few years later, um, that was done and never had contact again. And then all this disaster nightmares happening where so many egos are jumping around. But having had a lot of Russian and Ukrainian friends, there are two sides to the story. Let me make it clear, it was I'm completely against. Never, ever, ever did they work ever in any situation. But a lot of Ukrainian people have terrible Medicare, medical care, have tiny wages and want to be part of Russia. And they should be allowed to be part of Russia and go to Russia. But to actually do have a war is, is absolutely insane, in my opinion, because it just creates devastation. But, you know, the Ukrainians are not innocent and neither are the Russians. And certainly we are not innocent as a government or any governments involved. There's always an agenda. It's never the goodness. They're not charities. Do you mind if I ask about sort of COVID and how the lockdowns were for you and, and your family? Yeah, no. Um, so regarding COVID, um, basically it was the busiest time of my life. We had to keep the factories alive. A third of the business went shut down because it was we supplied restaurants, exhibitions, concerts. Um, I just expanded buying the Cody Procter Gamble factory, um, the Walker's factory in Newcastle, and expanded the vegan cheese factory. Created all the business, risked everything, and boom, third of the business just shut down. So I worked 24-7 to boost the online store. We were lucky that we had one. And then I traveled around to the countries that were still meeting before we went into lockdown. And then... England went into lockdown. So I was out in the Middle East doing the Gulf food show, which is one of the biggest food shows. And I just got a load of products into Spinney's, Waitrose out there to keep the businesses alive over here. So it was the busiest time of my life. Didn't have the luxury of saying I'm bored um, or being paid to be in lockdown, you know, with furlough. We were really, really crazy busy and we were lucky we kept the businesses alive through that period because we didn't get any help from the government. Employees got help, but businesses didn't. You still had massive business rates. Um, you still had huge overheads, the factories, utilities, millions of pounds that you had to find from trying to create some sort of business. So for business owners, it was the worst time ever. As an employee, it was a lot easier, but not for everybody because 80% of some people's wages don't cover their overhead. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of difficulties. But when you have a huge amount of factories and 453 staff that you're responsible for, you need to get your acting gear and get to work to make sure that they keep their jobs. You've turned your hand to so many different things from activism to skiing and so on. What does Heather Mills do in her spare time now? Um, family. Um, I'm full on and full off. I, I literally. I did a small merger with a German company a year ago and they came in and analyzed my business and said, okay, 
we've analysed it and we need 14 people to do your one job for you to be able to get on with the macro. So that's changed my day from a 20-hour day, seven days a week, to a 10-hour day, five days a week. So I do actually have some time now. And um, I love to visit, you know, National Trust houses. I love to do sport. I love to go hiking with my family um, on my time off. Love eating, trying out restaurants. Love going to the movies. Um, love going to the Everyman theatres, lying on those big sofas. Just just um, relaxing and um, going on holidays with friends and family where possible. So, you know, life's a lot easier now. It's not 20 hours, seven days a week. Um, we've got we've got through the the difficult five years of Brexit and, and COVID, even though Brexit is still a kindergarten at the borders and get problems with export and import and you're always problem solving. But as you get older you start to compartmentalize and put things in boxes and actually segregate things and not let them eat away at you twenty four hours because the problems are always continuous. They're always at you the whole time. So you have to embrace those moments where positive things happen because everyone remembers the negative and they need to sort of really make the most of when those lovely moments happen and just relish them and enjoy and love your family I mean there's nothing more important than that you know we kids grow up really quick and some people work too much I remember pre-covid we were always talking about flexi hours and now it's it's standard. People can do a few days at home and a few days at work. We can't do that in the food industry. We have to be at the factories, but generally people are having a better quality of life, more, more time with their kids. But um, as long as they're self-motivators, that works. But if they're people that need to be sociable in, in an office environment, then it's, it's great if we've got that ability to, to mix it up. What other issues are you conscious of at the moment? Is there any other pressing issues you see away from veganism, etc.? What, round the world, you mean, or to, except for veganism? Yes, yeah. Well, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds, yeah. You would go, we'd go on for hours. There's, there's issues, everybody's got their own individual concerns and issues, you know. There's so many things to sort out, you know. The government, um, legal systems, justice for people powerful people getting away with murder loads and loads of things there's there's so many problems to solve but when people have daily stresses and strifes in their life then you know what's going on in the outer world is is, is not always a priority understandably usually people's concerns are all about what's connected to something that's affecting their lives or someone they love or you know and that's why people generally you know I, I didn't know about veganism until I lost my leg so would I have got to know about it later? Probably. Would I have become vegan as early? Who knows? Because my reasons were, were health. And then once my head was above the parapet, I realized, oh, I'm not eating those animals in the field. And then as I educated myself more, I went, and those animals are the biggest cause of global warming. Actually, I'm not contributing to global warming as much as I was. And turning that carbon footprint the other ways. Basically, for the final part of each episode, we ask guests their favourite things, places, shops, etc. in Sussex in a segment called Five of the Best. And the first question is, if you were going for a coffee and a cake from a friend without town, where would you take them in Sussex? Ooh. Generally, I make the cakes myself. 
Um, but I used to love it when Infinity Foods had their own little cafe because they had the best almond bakewell tarts. So that was always my favorite for, for coffee and cake. But I don't think that's there anymore. I think the, the shop's still there. What's the best shop in Sussex, in your opinion? Um, there used to be a little boutique shop um, where a lady used to make her own individual unique things in the lanes. I can't remember. The gets up, gets in the factories and doesn't really have much time to go around Brighton shopping. But I can tell you some of the good restaurants, you know, Food for Friends and Moshimo are my favourite when I'm there. But whether it's for a concert, comedy or theatre, do you have a favourite venue? Well, interestingly, when I was a kid, my dad thought it was a reincarnation of Richard Wagner. So we used to do the visual presentation of the Ring of the Nibelung in the Brighton Centre. And my uh, Royal Festival Hall, the Brighton Centre, the barbecue pit to see Eddie Izzard, Michael Bublé, you know, some really great concerts. And then a few dive bars where you can see some up and coming bands um, around Brighton. I've really enjoyed. And there was one disco that I can't remember the name of. It was on the beach that me and the girls used to go to till four in the morning in our 20s. But I'm kind of past all that now. It's all a bit noisy. <laughs> if you were looking to escape the city, did you have a, or do you have a favourite outdoors place to visit? Austria. Um, when I got into ski racing and, and competing, um, I used to just go to the top of the glacier and stay in a place up there and switch off from the world. And yeah, that's that's my sort of real heaven. Nobody knows who you are and you're just hidden away. So Austria is my second home. You did touch on it a second ago, but just very lastly, whether it's for a drink or a sit-down meal, have you got a favourite restaurant, pub, bar in Sussex? My favourite restaurant is Moshimo. I love going to food for friends, but um, I introduced Carl to vegan food, um, the owner, when we first started, and he really out where to go to get, you know, vegetables from Booker's when we first opened the cafe. And um, he's held some a lot of vegan events there. Now they have vegan night on a Wednesday. Um, so I, I love going to that restaurant. Well, that, that's everything. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Not at all. And if you get a few minutes off, come and see us at the Brighton Hotel at the Acumen Business event where I'm um, speaking on the 8th of June. Fantastic. All the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. Be sure to keep an eye out for our next episode and do feel free to go back and listen to some previous guests. But until then... If you know somebody from Sussex who you think has an interesting story to tell, then let us know. You can tweet us your guest suggestions at Brighton Argus on Twitter or directly to me at Chris underscore Fuller 11 and use the hashtag The Argus Podcast. Or you can email or send us a message on Facebook. And make sure to stay up to date with all the latest news from around Sussex on our website, theargus.co.uk. Until next time. <laughs>